It is widely reported around the world that our global mental health is poor and getting worse. From the young to the old, it seems few are spared from the suffering caused by depression, anxiety and loneliness. You could easily think that the data suggests we are going from bad to worse, but are we? It occurred to me that we are actually in the middle of a very big wave or big cycle of awakening in the sense that people are talking about becoming more mature or a level of maturity that is going to be a shift or a jump in the collective consciousness of humanity. If we follow this global trend of rising levels of global sadness or unhappiness, you will see that the conditions are actually ready for a big mental revolution. Because if you look at the history of religions like Islam or Christianity or Judaism, that all of the prophets were actually appealing to the people who had miserable lives. And we are right now, in a sense, at a similar moment in the human history. That is today's guest. Victor Motti. Victor is the director of the World Futures Studies Federation and the director of the planetary think tank, the Alternative Planetary Futures Institute. We also previously spoke to Victor in podcast 51, Wise Futures of Infinite Time. Welcome back to FuturePod, Victor. Thank you very much for having me today. I really enjoyed talking to you almost two and a half years ago. Yeah, two and a half years, May 2020. There was a bit going on in the world at that time. So, Vic, let's start with updating how the last couple of years have been for you. For all of us, they've been dramatic years, but I'm going to suspect that for you, those years were even a bit more dramatic than most people. Absolutely dramatic because back then I was based in Turkey and I was taking temporary uh, escape from my homeland. And uh, you mentioned that we were experiencing the lockdowns during the pandemic. And at the same time, I was, in a sense, was forced to leave Turkey, get back to Iran. And because I was waiting for my immigration case to be approved by the U.S. Embassy. Yep. And in 2021, after Biden administration uh, took office, we were actually given our visa, the immigration documents. And since August of 2021, we have moved to Washington, D.C. And we have started a new life here, migrating to a new country, and I hope that this will be my final destination. I'm not forced to <laughs> move to another country, but that's that's both a challenge and an opportunity because at the very least here in the U.S., there are lots of good aspects of being a futurist and being a person associated with the international body of futurists. That was not quite easy to do back in the Middle East for me. And mm. I'm I'm quite lucky and fortunate to have 
been given this opportunity by the U.S. government to immigrate to the United States. Yeah, I've been following it, Victor. The way I would describe it to people, to listeners who don't know you probably as closely as I do, you've been like a kid in the candy store since you got to America. I remember when you got to the Smithsonian and they had the Futures exhibition going and you must have posted well over 100 photos of the exhibition. You were like the ultimate tourist or you're in Futures heaven. Yeah, this particular choice for me, I was free to choose any place, any city throughout the United States. But ultimately, after talking to my wife, we decided to move to to this area, the capital area. And the good news is that the majority of the very important events are actually organized here. And we are at the very heart of policy and politics and futurist work and etc. And that Smithsonian exhibition was quite something big for me to participate. I think the consulting arm for that exhibition was this Institute of Future based in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. And that could be seen from the arrangement throughout the exhibition that the signature of their consulting work were actually evident there. But yeah, I took my camera and the phone and tried to uh, record every part of the exhibition for our fellow members in the World Futures Studies Federation so that they can get a direct experience like me of what is presented there. And it was quite a big popular event for many people to participate there. But of course, from some perspectives that some of our members in the Federation later on shared with us, I should say that it was not quite that kind of pluralistic and integrative futurist exhibition that I had in mind. But anyway, it should come later on because the point is that even during the ongoing pandemic, they were able to put together such a big show for people to participate in that show. Yeah. And it's important to have conversations about possible futures and open futures and especially going through a pandemic. While it's important that we focus on the now, you've also got to lift people's eyes and lift people's hearts to what's possible. Yeah. The the Smithsonian has a very high reputation of providing lots of different experiences for people interested in the museums and scientific and technological advancements. And thinking about the future and the possible futures is actually one of the key differentiating aspects of this particular institution. Traditionally involved in museums or history and the, the, the mere fact that they are right now shifting to, towards a combination of history and futurist thinking is actually quite impressive. And I should mention that when I was touring around that exhibit, I saw that there was many places in the exhibition that were combining parts of the history with the present and, of course, the future. It was not exclusively about the future. For example, there were some sections about the colonial past of the Western countries when they were dealing with countries in, for example, in Asia and or Africa. And it showed that over the course of 50 or 100 years, you can see a, a big amount of change 
occurring throughout the world. And it should somehow surprise you to see that how values are shifting, not mm. only technologies. Yeah, and of course, the fact that a lot of museums now bring a real social criticism to their pasts and the hope is, of course, that we actually bring a similarly critical function to the futures as to whether yeah, we want them yeah. or we don't want them. That was exactly my point in the Smithsonian exhibit. And of course, when I was looking for neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., I actually decided to settle down in this neighborhood, which is called the Think Tank Row, or a neighborhood which, if you look, up, look it up on the internet, is that many of the leading American think tanks are located here, close to the White House, and it is full of policy analysis institutions or think tanks. And I would say that the fact that I am the director of the Federation was quite relevant in this choice because very quickly I helped to establish two different organizations or initiatives related to their futures Mm. and, of course, related to policy analysis. I might be able to talk more about this too later. You are well and truly inside the Beltway. <laughs> yeah, the city is uh, Washington DC is you like it or you dislike it anyway. It's very political and uh, right before we came here there was a big riot against the US Congress after the January 6 and uh, yeah. it's a highly political place and, and guess what the majority of people here are calling themselves consultant and who knows what they are consulting <laughs> about. <laughs> yeah, lobbyists and consultants and yeah. influencers. Yeah, yeah, it must be an exciting place. So you've established yourself, you've moved yourself and your family to Washington, but you haven't rested on your laurels. What do you do now? Because when you move, if I call you a refugee, it's what you are. You basically come to a country and then you've got to become established. And you obviously got to get a kind of foundation as to what you do. So how's that gone? If you remember, well, during our past conversation during this podcast series, I was talking about the planetary futures or alternative Mm. planetary futures and the book that I wrote. And very quickly after I arrived, I met Jerome Glenn from the Millennium Project And I proposed the idea of establishing a new think tank, a planetary think tank that could complement what uh, Jerry has already achieved in his Millennium Project with lots of different notes across the board. And based on the ideas in that book, and of course our talk together in the past part, we were able to actually establish this uh, new think tank a non-profit organization which is called Alternative Planetary Futures Institute. And it's primarily an institution which is going to focus exclusively on the idea of planetary consciousness. And the interesting fact is when we established this institute, this non-profit or the new think tank in this think tank row, I actually were able to meet uh, other futurists who are based in the area like Claire Nelson and William Halal and talk to Clem Besold and lots of other futurists who are based in the area. And of course, I also met or paid a visit to Tom Lombardo in Arizona in during the Thanksgiving of mm. 2021. 
And the interesting thing is that the majority of these futurists were independently talking about the planetary consciousness or the global consciousness, as Dr. William Halal would like to call it in his book, Beyond Knowledge. And this was quite a very fulfilling experience for me to see that some of the other leading futurists that I know about them are talking about the importance of obtaining this global consciousness, or as I would like to call it, planetary consciousness. This is about, of course, the nonprofit activity that I'm establishing here and try to keep the website updated about this topic by monitoring and reporting back from other sources that are also dealing with planetary consciousness. And another initiative that we established with the help of training services company based in Silver Spring, Maryland, is establishment of a foresight academy. This is right. not nonprofit, of course, this is a company. And I tried to introduce contacts throughout the Federation and, of course, from other networks who were already teaching or offering courses on futures studies or foresight to provide a new platform for offering customized workshops and seminars for the U.S. government and other governments throughout the world. And if you like to later obtain more information, you can look it up on the internet, the MS Academy. And that is also the work, my full-time job right now as the executive director of this academy. And this academy is supposed to provide uh, customized workshops and offerings for people from the public sector mostly who are interested to who are interested to uh, obtain a good quality world class training on strategic foresight for their specific agency needs and our hope is that initially we will be able to work with the US federal agencies most of them are of course located in Washington, D.C., and, of course, later on, expand towards other governments, even for the international organization like the United Nations, if you follow what John Glenn is doing with the Millennium Project and our common agenda with the United Nations. It seems that we are right now in the very important stage of foresight promotion and training and education and of course, there are many options for people, for example, to enroll in university programs, to obtain a degree, a PhD, like people in the Federation. But we saw a good demand among the federal agencies, among the people from the governments across the world to get customized training on foresight. And that is right now my day job. And it, mm. I'm doing that as my day job and so try to focus on this uh, non-profit or the think tank that yep. I mentioned today. That's good. I will take this moment to encourage you to use the FuturePod podcasts as part of your offerings because one of the nice things that's happened with FuturePod now, we've been going for four years, it's now getting picked up and used in education. As a matter of fact, we have developed an, a learning experience platform which parts of it is actually free to use. It's a freemium section of the platform. Anybody who goes to the website of the DMS.academy can 
sign up for a user and get some access to our library of free online courses yep. on education about foresight. And of course, a list of relevant books or book titles. And of course, I'm going to add the huge resource that you have developed very professionally so far in this podcast. It's absolutely relevant for many people from the government, federal agencies to get a quick and curated access to top quality content in the format of audios, and of course, videos and books, etc. I was having a look at the APFI website and the library section. That is an impressive work. When you see that total of books that so many authors have produced, when you look at the corpus of that collection of thinking, it is mm. powerful when you imagine, as you say, these people have been often beavering away by themselves. But when you assemble it in that way, it's you go, wow, while it's not necessarily completely integrated, there is so much yeah. information there and so much ideas. I sometimes mentioned this to our colleagues and friends saying that a typical futurist is often monitoring and scanning and looking around for the information throughout uh, different sources to make sense of the trends or scenarios or uncertainties. But I have developed this habit of monitoring the futurist themselves in the sense that I'm trying to provide a foresight that could lead the other foresight. And when I refer to this today, that I saw that when we look at the titles of books and reports by futurists themselves, you can aggregate them together and make another meta-coherent picture of what is going to happen. And surprisingly, I saw that all of them are not simply talking about the next technological developments, but also about the next mental or spiritual or consciousness-related big a revolution on the horizon, including people like Dr. William Halal or even Claire Nelson and even Jerome Glenn. And very recently, we even published a PowerPoint with a volume of almost 130 pages focused entirely on the idea of collective awakening at the planetary scale. And it's something very informative, at least for me, to see that many leading futurists from across the different sectors and from cultures, countries, from France, from Australia, from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa, from the North America, almost any place are independently talking about the future of the planets or the planetary consciousness. And even today, if you look at the money train page on the appfight.us website that one of the leading think tanks, those political think tanks that are often interested in international relations, has also published a very important report about planetary politics, talking about the need for thinking about the ecology and the earth as a whole, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. If you look at, at their website and our website, that they have also talking or working in that direction, raising awareness about this importance, collective awakening about the planet and the planetary thinking and this topic, this kind of topics. Yeah, 
now. I'm going to bring up Zervan and I'm going to bring up the whole dialectic philosophical foundation part of what we talked about last time. Because when you talk about planetary consciousness, and there clearly is, I remember Barbara Marks Hubbard and that was all the thing that she talked about. And then there's so many other people are almost continuing the work that Barbara was doing. And so there's that going on. But at the same time, if you look at the world, there is, of course, the other mind, the angry mind, that actually says, no, we actually need to go back to fundamental values. We need to become more as we were, not as we are becoming. And so it is a contest. This is going to be a contest of ideas. There is no logical trend. There will be a fought battle for the mind and for the values that go forward. Yeah, absolutely right. When I was talking about this new report, The Future of Collective Awakening, that actually began when we were starting the report by the 2100 Foundation based in France, I was talking about this centuries of the spirit or centuries of the mind. It occurred to me that we are actually in the middle of a very big wave or big cycle of awakening in the sense that people are talking about becoming more mature or a level of maturity that is going to be a shift or a jump in the collective consciousness of humanity. And you're absolutely right because uh, there are some other forces and or some other movements that might try to drag down or provide a sort of bad consciousness as opposed or less wise consciousness as Mm. opposed to more mature or wise consciousness that we are talking about them. But sometimes there are critics who say that we are not supposed to do only normative futures work and we are supposed also to provide explorative or objective analysis of what is going on in the environment or in the information sphere of human activity. But there are, of course, some objective trends and measures that are talking about the importance of this major shift. And I'm just going to review two of these objective measurements. The first one is about the recent Gallup survey, which has been widely reported in the media about the rise of the global sadness of the or the global unhappiness. And it is a global phenomenon related to mental health. And people are suffering in many countries. And it's not simply something subjective. It's actually making an impact on their objective or material life. And in addition to that, if you follow this global trend of uh, rising levels of global sadness or unhappiness, you will see that the conditions are actually ready for a big mental revolution. Because if you look at the history of religions like Islam or Christianity or Judaism, that all of the prophets were actually appealing to the people who had miserable lives. And we are right now, in a sense, at a similar moment in the human history. And in addition to that, if you follow the news about the optimization and loss of jobs to technological progress, in particular AI or artificial intelligence, you would see that people will have very soon a lot of free time if they are laid off from work. And the only 
good estimate or speculation about what people will do when they have a lot of free time and are not required to have nine to five work hours. They will try to reconsider their values, their ethical considerations. And that is also another objective indicators of what is going on. Uh, and what is expected to happen. People will begin to ponder or reflect upon their values, upon what should be their new th- sets of ethics or their identity. If you have seen this uh, recent book by Jim Dator, it's also about becoming or the issue of identity. When people are not too much busy doing their business or having to do a lot of work to just survive, The obvious option for them for getting themselves busy, in a sense, or become active is to actually join the nonprofits or join a particular cause in their life. And here in Washington, D.C., there are many, many associations and nonprofits from every type, from people who are advocating for human rights, for people helping each other to end poverty or uh, racial discriminations or equity, etc. And of course, there are people very much focused on the saving the planet or environmentalist activists. And I suspect that in the near future, when assuming that many people are not required to do works that have already been taken away from them by robots or AI, the majority of people will find a good way to contribute to the society by joining this kind of nonprofit organizations or NGOs. And that is also going to be a huge shift in the distribution of the labor in a society away from commercial activity to non-commercial and humanitarian or nonprofit sector. Yeah, I just published the latest podcast with Andy Hines about mm-hmm. his upcoming book, called After Capitalism. Yeah. And Andy, of course, was looking at the future economically, particularly from the incredible inequalities of income. And so one of the things that Andy was saying was that capitalism will continue, but it will have to change because societies will not have never. History tells us that societies will not tolerate significant imbalances in equality of income without causing problems. And the demagogues and conservatives and the angry minds who want to control and go back to a better time, inequality is one of those raw materials that feed anger and feed those movements. And clearly what you're talking about is if people have free time, then they will reflect kind of what happened during COVID when a lot of people had guaranteed incomes, didn't have to go into work, and they re-examined their jobs and re-examined what they did. And when they finally got a chance to go back to work, a lot of them said, I'm not going to go back to that crappy job I had. I'm going to go and do something else. But surely one of the key factors during COVID that allowed people to do the reflection was the fact there was actually a supplement or there was a support being provided to them that gave them the freedom to explore the things that you talked about. Yeah. But we're, you, not, you know, but we're not seeing those continue now that COVID's coming to the end, are we? No, who knows is coming to an end because right now there are protests in 
all over China against the lockdowns. The great pause that began by the COVID was actually very helpful for many countries to reconsider their business as usual. And I'm sure that even though some of the companies will require people, even here in Washington, D.C., will require people to get back to office, many people will simply refuse to do that. They are because they are already tasting the freedom of working from home in many mm. cases, of course. And of course, I would say that about the capitalism and the ideas by Andy Hines, of course, they are very relevant, I believe. There is a big criticism against the United States for following the sort of neoliberal capitalism. And uh, when you compare it with the situation in other countries, like in Europe, for example, that there are very large differences. I well remember that a couple of months ago when I was in a bus commuting to a meeting, uh, two uh, Americans were sitting in the bus talking to each other. One of them just arrived from a visit to Europe. And that gentleman was sharing his experience with the other passengers in the bus, telling them that you won't believe it, uh, how the health system, education system, and the public transportation is totally different in Europe if compared with the United States, wow. in the sense that the education is much, much cheaper and you are not forced to finish it up. Like in Germany, you are not finish, going to finish it up very soon and you are allowed to actually extend your study for many years if you are, for example, looking to have a family and children. And of course, about the health coverage or insurance and the transportation. There are lots of different policies in place and there are lots of big gaps if you compare even Western countries and Europe and the U.S. And the good thing is that the pandemic helped many people to at least shuffle or reconsider their old assumptions about how the health system, how the education and the transportation should work. And just this tiny invisible virus was able to provide such dramatic shifts and radical changes in our design or new design for our society. And I'm sure that people are experimenting with lots of different alternatives or options right now. And mm, uh, the, the good thing from my point of view is that we are not going back to normal, the previous normal. Anything that is going to happen should be some level of more sophistication or evolved situation that is going to emerge. And we need to embrace this new world that is emerging and not trying to stick to the false idea that we can resurrect the already died order of the war. And we're looking at it, it's playing out live in Europe tragically at the moment where you yeah. get, effectively, there's a mindset that says, we believe that you're Russian, we believe that you don't have this new identity. And then you've got a group of people simply saying, no, we actually aren't. And then I suppose the most interesting thing from the tragedy of the war in Ukraine, but how it has galvanized a lot of the world governments to simply take a side on something. It's had a galvanizing force on public and private and individual and political that you need to stand for something. It hasn't been universal. There's still significant parts of the world that 
aren't taking a stand directly. But it's getting harder and harder to not take a stand, isn't it? Yeah, of course. The major impact of the unfortunate war in Ukraine is that there was also a big momentum for the shift away from the fossil fuels in the sense that Europe is reconsidering its reliance on energy that is coming from Russia. If you want to take that stand, it will have a cost for you. It will have a bitter cost for you. And I would say that it is somehow contributing as an accelerator to this major shift from fossil fuels. The same way that the COVID virus contributed as an accelerator or a catalyst to digital transformation, I would say that taking that stand against Russian aggression against Ukraine is helping many people to think about, creatively think about how to shift away from the fossil fuel and consider that kind of transformation in their lives and in their economies. And if you look around that Russia or China or Iran are not are not just a few examples. There is a moment for many corporations to take a side about the conscience of humanity. A few days ago, I was reading a report by a colleague who has a think tank in Germany. It was a very long report, very informative, and uh, talking about the importance of even considering of decoupling between economic interests of corporations, for example, in Germany, and the regulations related to sanction against China or Russia or Iran. And one of the basic premises of that argument was that we are not supposed to impose our Western cultural values on non-Western countries. But I tended to disagree, at least partially, with this assumption in the sense that I can agree that there are some Western values like extreme individualism or direct democracy or even protection of gay rights. But there are some values that should be considered as universal. It should be considered as related to the conscience of humanity. And we should think about not even dynamics between corporations or governments regulating or talking to each other. For example, corporations will do their best to seek their profit and governments will do their best to regulate them, put them on a sanction list or put a heavy fine on them. But there is a third element, which is also related to the topic that I mentioned today, and that is the civil society. And during our age of very easy access to digital tools like your your camera on your phone or social media, you can sometimes see that there is a viral video showing that despite the sanctions, for example, a German company is actually doing business with some of these key violators of human rights, basic human rights. And they cannot allow to a couple of apologies to whitewashed atrocities committed by these aggressors that you mentioned, Russia, for example. And I'm very positive about the fact that the dynamics of the driving forces of change over the horizon is preparing our societies to see a major shift of labor or labor distribution from the commercial sector to the non-commercial, to 
nonprofit, to those people who are trying to think about creatively and freely Andy Hines about the post-capitalism. Because Andy Hines is a professor at the University of Houston. He can have a lot of good resources and enough expertise and time to think about creatively about the ideas for the post-capitalist work. But imagine an ordinary person who is having a tough time paying the bills or live on paycheck by paycheck and doesn't have enough attention or focus on those kind of co-curation of the future. Imagine that in the future, we provide some kind of space for all of the people to contribute to such a discourse, such a discussion. That will be a huge democratic, participatory, global initiative. And uh, I'm very positive about that third element that is going to play a decisive role in addition to governments and the corporations. Yeah. If given the opportunity, for example, good civic education for people, they will become much more interested to positively contribute to such discussions. Politicians or companies, CEOs, they might not have enough good access to high quality education or training. But the new reality is that anybody with access to, for example, YouTube can educate themselves to learn more about politics. And by the way, in most democracies right now, the only way for people to participate in the democratic process is through the election cycles during the election season. We had these midterm elections in the U.S. a couple of weeks ago, and that is a very rare opportunity for people just to cast a vote. But the future is going to be totally different because not only some politicians or companies have the exclusive ability or resources or time to make their impact on the policymaking process, but as a matter of fact, the society at large, because when you allow people to have, for example, a universal basic income or other sorts of way to give them the, the minimum amount of support or resources for survival, then why not? They can contribute not only through the election cycles, but throughout the year. And the U.S. they also has a very good tradition of citizen-shaped associations because of their particular design from the very beginning in the U.S. Constitution, that people are free to assemble, make associations, and choose whatever cause they would like to advocate. And advocacy here, at least in Washington, D.C., is the job of many of the people here. And guess what? Uh, When I was in Turkey or even in Iran or other countries in the Middle East, I'm sure that I had to... uh, apply and obtain a permission for establishing a new institution. But here in the U.S., uh, there is actually uh, no big permission required. The only thing, of course, from the point of the view of the U.S. government is that whether are you going to be tax exempt or not? Are you going to pay your taxes if you are collecting big donations from big donors? Other than that, you are totally free to do whatever you like to do. And I was even mentioning this to my friends and family members that my basic and the most important criteria or the reason that I enjoy moving to Washington, D.C. or the United States is uh, the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution, which is about the freedom of expression. And uh, unlike my 
a very harsh experience of coming from a religious dictatorship in the Middle East. There is no religion, official or state religion in the U.S. There is no requirement for people to apply for permission to do anything. As far as you are a good taxpayer, you are good to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the First Amendment allows people to assemble and and express ideas that we don't agree with. And they have the freedom to do that, to assemble and express ideas that others in society find offensive, oppressive. It is a very live and important conversation for all of us. Yeah. In addition to that Smithsonian exhibit, I also visited lots of different tourist attractions throughout the D.C. area. And one of them was actually the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, and that was a big quotation from him. I'm not sure what was the exact words, but it was about the fact that he is going to stand or resist throughout his lifetime any kinds of dictatorship or tyranny against the human mind. And that is a very powerful message from one of the founding fathers of the U.S. Yeah. Victor, it's been wonderful to catch up again. Congratulations on the Alternative Planetary Futures Institute. I hope it goes well. And also I hope that you have great success with the Education Corporation providing... Yeah, the Academy. Yeah, but thanks. Great to catch up and we'll do it again. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you and hopefully we will get positive feedback from your audience about this talk today. Thanks, Victor. I hope you enjoyed Victor's story of finding a new home for himself and his family alongside his view that humanity is at the verge of developing a planetary consciousness. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the pod, then check out our Patreon, which you'll find a link to on the website. And Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.